Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Mopilips, according to the Pararex chat room. They always have the weirdest name, Mopilips, or Mopilips, I don't know, whatever. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, the unbelievable, New England's own Van Helsink, the purveyor of the mysterious, the macabre, with me... All the way from wherever he is, I believe it's Wales, is the most honorable Steve Parsons. Good evening, and welcome to a very famous day in history. Yeah, it's the day you guys almost discovered something at Borley Rectory. No, I mean, it was the, actually, it was the day of the commissioning of the USS Constellation. Ah, same thing. Or we could pick the day some clod slipped through a B-25 into the Empire State Building. Or Kennewick Man. Mm. There you go, one of your relatives there. Ken- Kennewick Man was discovered. Mm. Anyways, you'll listen to us on uh, Tojinet, Pararex, Planet Paranormal, Crackle Radio, wherever else we're being carried. But do you know we have a nuclear bomb missing off the coast of Carolina? Uh I thought there were several. There's one. No, just one. No, we don't lose them that often. Yeah, they dropped one off Rotor in Spain as well. Or did they wow. get that one back? I think they get that one back. The one they've never found the one off of Carolina. Anyway, if you've seen a nuclear bomb, wash up on the Carolina beaches. Uh, get in the chat room now and let us know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, 28th of July, a very famous date. Yeah. Why? As uh, as. Uh, I'm not Roosevelt. going that direction. It, we are. <laughs> no, we're not. A, a day that will live in infamy. Actually, yeah. a day that will live in lots of fond memories for me because that's the day when traditionally I wouldn't be here, I would be there. Yeah, see? Looking for nuns. What? Oh, Bully Rector. Yeah, we'll get back to that in a long time. Uh, so, anyways, I was actually, uh, you know, we throw, yeah, we're going to talk all about Bully Rector. We can do that. Oh, he died. Uh, Anyways, you know, we throw these words around paranormal, supernatural. Do people even know what it means? Do they care? No, they don't. The reason I say that is because they don't make any distinction. Um, Supernatural is uh, distinctly different. They both have distinct definitions. Oh, it is? They both have distinct definitions. Um, Well, you you tell me how different they are. Well... (laughs) I know that supernatural is, is the older word. It goes back to the 1500s, and uh, paranormal is fairly new, about 1905, I believe. But uh, well, I mean, in, ter- in terms of what we're talking about, uh, ghost chronicles-wise, um, metaphysics is, is actually the, the used to be the more preferred option uh, as opposed to paranormal. Paranormal is just one of these sort of great group headings that lump everything into. What can't be explained, whereas supernatural 
more refers to um, things that are mythical, that, uh, related to the to the natural world. Hence, hence the, the change in the expression. I could oh, Google. I, I could Google I, the I, definition. I, I, te- I, tend, I tend to disagree with you on that because Dude. basically, yeah, because I have actually the definition of supernatural staring me right in the face. Anyway, you've, you've so, just Googled it, haven't you? <laughs> no, I haven't. I actually have a dictionary. Do you remember them? Oh, yes, yeah. Well, the written word. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, supernatural yeah. is, is just those, uh, those things that cannot be explained by the laws of nature. Uh, the, the very short definition of it, that's what it is, basically, which is very, if not the same, as paranormal. Uh, it's, not, it's not saying that it, it has any, any uh, uh, religious 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 definition, but rather that it's just items or things that cannot be explained now with the the law of nature and what we know. So Really? Well, if we look at another... De- this is the problem with definitions, and this is the problem with what things like defining ghosts... Why, another, you're looking, what are you looking on another, the internet? <laughs> no, I'm using a book also, see? Uh, another definition of supernatural relates to an order of existence beyond the visible, observable universe, especially of or relating to God or demigods, spirits or devils. Oh, it's in what's it, all right, what's the name of your dictionary? Uh, the Webster's. Mm. See, how many, this is, how many pages? This is, oh, both of them. Um, this is, this is one pages? of the pro- I don't know how many pages. It flips at about 963. Well, I have more. Mine well, is the <laughs> new lexicon uh, uh, Webster's Dictionary of the English language, which not to define whatever the hell you're reading. Well, the problem is it's down to definitions, isn't it? Because the definition is decided by the person who's writing the dictionary. And in fact, if you if you uh, take so for example, it's not written by one person. Uh, if we take for example the word ghost, I mean. The, the dictionary definition is could be argued to be wrong because it, the dictionary definition of a ghost is an apparition of a dead person who is believed to appear or become manifest to the living, typically as a nebulous image. Now, that comes from the Oxford Dictionary. Um, but we, we know that there are ghosts of animals, that there are ghosts of aeroplanes, that there are ghosts of vehicles, that ghosts Depending of clothes. Depending definition of a ghost. So, so the, exactly. So this is, you just made the point I've just been making. Um, the, the definition is not a very good way of defining something. All right, so when, let's move when on. When we talk about the supernatural and, and paranormal, ostensibly they mean the same thing to most people. Right. Um, and the two words have become, over time, interchangeable, although they do have um, dif- distinctly different uh, meanings. Supernatural... To, to certain people. To certain people. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Anyway. Um, definitions are something you can argue about a lot because they do mean different things to different people. Right. So I actually uh, I, I was very much interested in uh, firewalking. Firewalking was always thought to be paranormal or supernatural in air quotes. And, of course, it's been studied ostensibly by many, many people, including your favorite guy, who we're going to talk about shortly uh, Harry Price, and and I actually uh, saw the footage of the firewalk he did with uh, what the hell's his name Bug Box something Box Boda Box Yoda Box. Well, yeah, 
Kuda Bucks was what they called him. His real full name was Kuda Butch, which yeah. was um, he was born in. He only died in in the early nineteen eighty one, I think. Yeah. Um, and one of his most uh, he was a very famous firewalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were absolutely right. Harry Price did study uh, the the nineteen thirty five. He did a firewalker. Um, and Bucks also uh, re- uh, performed at the Radio City in Manhattan in 1938. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a very famous firewalker. In fact, um, this firewalking phenomenon, and it is a phenomenon, it has taken off. Uh, it has gone from the mysterious, the supernatural, the paranormal, define it as you wish, in the 1930s, 40s, and beyond, to mm-hmm. the present day, where... We have charity events here at Fates and Carnivals in the UK where people en masse firewalk. Uh, so it's, it's, it's become a fairly acceptable thing. And by that definite, you know, by our understanding of it now, although there are several explanations as to the actual mechanism by which people are able to walk on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, See, that's the interesting thing about the- what you and I do, Steve, is that. You always have people studying, and they always come up with their own theories. And them and themselves are not necessarily what really floats the boat of the firewalker. In other words, there are many theories, for instance, like the lightning uh, frost effect uh, is, is one of them, of course, where, which is the moisture on the skin protects it, uh-huh. all the way to, uh, you know, Wolfgang, uh, what the hell's his name, Wolfgang, uh, I can't think of that German guy, but he, he found that uh, theta waves uh, emanated, uh, also protected them, to... Just strange, uh, a German I mean, a scientist in India who believed that the the amount of calluses on your, your foot has a lot to do with it. So uh, each of these theories uh, all have credence, but and, and then, of course, there's, there's just the, the plain mind over matter thing, which is a, another whole ballgame. Well, the two, the two current favorites are the one, the one that you touched upon at the start, which is that the, uh, the sweat layer in the feet builds up a, a protective steam ba- vapor barrier, steam vapor barrier, mm-hmm. um, which prevents burning. That's actually been tested a number of times and is found to be least likely of the, of the two favored explanations mm-hmm. because most people, although they do have sweaty feet, the soles of the feet don't tend to sweat. It's the upper, right. the upper part of the foot. Um, the most favoured current explanation and the most likely explanation is that the, there is a fine layer of white ash above the, uh, the, the wood charcoal, mm-hmm. which is acting as an insulator between the uh, sole of the foot and the, the extreme heat mm-hmm. uh, of the ember. Um, and firewalking is, is, is um, whenever they do these public firewalks, they always wait. And in fact, Bucks himself also did the same thing. Uh, waited specifically for the white ash to form um, on the on the layer of uh, material he was walking across, which was normally wood, uh, very rarely coal. Right. Uh, coal. Coal is made as a sublayer. Then they put the protective uh, woods on top. And Bucks never ever. Uh, his that that being said, in the famous uh, Harry Price firewalk, there was also another gentleman who went in right after box and he burnt his feet severely. Absolutely, and there are there are lots of people who do get their feet burned because inevitably, uh, rather like a stake, if you stand too close, uh, if you spend too much time um, in close proximity to radiant heat, you're going to burn. But if you move across the the surface of the fire promptly 
apparently there's no need to run. Uh, I've never done it, but I've, I've spoken and met people who have done it. Um, and the instruction is walk briskly, um, but without stamping your feet to break this ash surface, uh, and, and just proceed across it at a, at a normal, brisk walking speed. Buck's made a big thing about uh, having his feet checked beforehand to make sure... Absolutely. No, ...no chemicals, creams, or, or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as I say, there are competing theories. I, I, I'm not sure whether theta waves or mind over matter. I mean, you've certainly got to have a great deal of courage to do it, so there is, a, you know, there is a, an element of mind over matter, personal sort of mind over matter to drive yourself to walk this bed of fire and group sort of conformity. You know, you get one do it and then they'll, they'll all start doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does require a brave individual. I think, I don't think I would have any qualms about giving it a go uh, because the, the failure rate is very low compared to the success rate. Normally it's around about 1 in 20, 1 in 30 you actually suffer. Mm-hmm quite minor burns, so I think you've got a fair chance of making a go at it. But Bucks was a very famous individual, because in addition to his fireworks, he, he, would, uh, he would do all sorts of performances, um, covering, he would blindfold himself, and he would uh, develop these, these yogic powers that he was uh, claiming, to, he claimed to have x-ray eyes as well. Um, I can come in he claimed to be able to see uh, through blindfolds, um, you know, objects, reading dates on coins that people were holding, reading the, the print in books, uh, the, the ability to thread needles, etc., 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 and shoot a bullseye with a gun uh, whilst blindfolded. So there you go. Um, yeah. So, anyways, it's all interesting stuff, and uh, but in that case, I mean. We have several explanations, but not necessarily which one is absolutely the one that works is, you know, uh, accepted. I mean, we, we, we change all the time. I mean, the, the one uh, Wolfgang, what the hell his name is, I can't remember, uh, you know, he also worked with fakers. And, and when they did all the, of course, the, uh, the pins stuck in them and all that crap, too. And he found that these uh, theta waves uh, were also, uh, you know, he wired everybody up. That was the deal. So he was ever to measure them. And in fact, he, he did it himself, uh, wired up and uh, was able to do it without burning his feet. So. It's all cool stuff. All cool stuff. So, anyways, let's get back to what you want to talk about, of course. Which it's, a, it's the same guy, actually. Yeah, I know. That's why I brought up old Harry. I, you know, you got me. You know, I fell in love with Harry from you. So, <laughs> so there you go. You know. <coughs> well, I mean, yeah. Back in the nineteen thirties, you say Harry uh, was already notorious, um, famous. Um, I had been for for many many years, and was always interested in more than just ghosts and and testing mediums you know he, he uh, tried to recreate a, a, a ritual by which a goat was turned into a young boy in germany in brocken really yeah the brocken experiment um he 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 was he was not afraid did he it was, work uh, no it didn't and he never expected it to although he got criticized afterwards for doing it as a publicity stunt but it it, it was yes it was a publicity stunt and price said all along that it was you should a do that as spare quest well, you wouldn't let me. We talked about that last week. Um, but, you know, it's the 20... We, we have to go back to what, what most people, what most people listening to the show and what most people, when you say Harry Price's name, 
um, they will associate it more with ball rectory. And I know what will be happening down in the little Essex village of Borley tonight. There will be a ring of uh, police um, keeping ghost hunters away because since Harry's time, um, when people used to get uh, what we call charabangs, coaches, um, they would they would go to the village or, uh, to the uh, on the twenty eighth of July in the hope of seeing the spectral nun. Uh, walking through the garden. And this, the story originates in 1900 when uh, a number of the Bull sisters, uh, three of them, were returning home from a garden party late in the evening, uh, around about an hour after sunset. So allowing for the... We didn't have the, the uh, ti- uh, daylight saving time then, so it would have been around 9 o'clock, 9pm. So just as we go off air tonight. Um, and let's, let's actually... Um, we can have the account of one of the of the sisters, Ethel, um, and she gave a, a, a description of the experience in 1947 when interviewed by the BBC, and she said, I was walking around the garden with two of my sisters, and they had been to a garden party and were telling me an amusing story that had happened, and then they, want, they wondered that I didn't take any notice of them, and they looked down at me as I shouted out, look, there's a nun walking there. And I was terrified, and so were they when they saw her. It sent cold shivers down our backs, and we simply flew up to the house. And then we saw our older sister, who was staying with us, and she said, oh, I'm not going to be frightened, so she came down to the garden. And when she saw the nun, she made to go across the potato bed to meet the nun, and the nun turned and came as if it, as if it were to meet her, and she was seized by panic, and she too flew up to the house. Now, that took place... I say around about 40 minutes from now, 115 years ago. And other people have also claimed uh, experiences on and around the 28th. And what happens since Harry Price's time with the publicity that took place uh, with the investigations of Borley, because remember it was a media-supported investigation right from the very beginning, um, is large numbers of sightseers went to the village in the hope of seeing the ghost, the ghost, the nub. And uh, that still continues to this day. And I'm one of those people. I've spent several 28ths of Julys in the village, um, in in the in actually on the nuns, actually standing on the nuns' walk. And as we speak, hopefully, into the Ghost Chronicles International Facebook page will appear a picture of the nuns' walk, um, which has changed quite a great deal since Harry Price's day because uh, modern houses have been built onto the site but the, the actual uh, nun's walk still exists um, but the villages as you can well imagine have had um, well have had enough of it really and so the village is ringed with steel on the 28th of uh, July as people go and hope but what's interesting is actually the 28th of July although people go to the village in the hope of seeing the nun it's one of these more stories that's, be, that's grown up around, the, around Borley. The nun has been seen on numerous occasions, um, and actually statistically more likely seen in the fall, so around September time, um, than the 28th. And uh, has only been seen uh, once or twice on the supposed nun's walk. More often, the figure uh, said to be the nun has been seen leaning on the uh, gatepost of the rectory. 
Um, really? So as and as we speak, hopefully, because that very gatepost still exists, um, we'll, there'll be a, an uploaded picture. And this the nun was actually seen leaning on the gatepost by a workman on his way to work in the morning uh, over several consecutive days. Um, looking wistfully and eventually he spoke to her at which point she turned and walked away um, so it's an interesting story people have, have claimed to have taken photographs of the spectral non-people subsequent to the um, Price investigation uh, up into the 60s and 70s any good photos? Uh, there have been photographs um, which are available, but due to copyright reasons, I can't post them onto onto our page. Uh, but mm-hmm. people can search for photographs of the the bawling nun. But are um, there any good ones? No, there's not. Uh, okay. Honestly, honestly, there is oh, nothing. That's why I ask, that's all. There's there's nothing that's convincing, unfortunately. Um, okay. There is one that that is said to be. Um, representative of the nun. Some people have claimed that they've had face-to-face encounters with, with the nun or with the figure that's described as the nun on the 28th of July. And it's one of these great events. Um, you know, As I said, back in Price's day, hundreds of people would get on, on coach trips and they would go to Borley, uh, outnumbering the residents of the tiny hamlet by, by tens to one. And the, even the case today... Um, you know, without the police, there there would be packs of uh, of sightseers and ghost hunters. Um, when we were there, we we took rent of one of the properties that was on the site of the rectory, um, and we were able to be there for twenty four hours over and through the night of the twenty eighth of July. Uh, and we witnessed firsthand the commotion um, of all of these people. But and back did you then, witness the what the nun? No, we didn't witness the nun, nor did we expect to. But um, oh. See, maybe that's your problem, why you don't get much results. Well, we didn't expect it. It's such negative... negative Not negative at all. I mean, is it negative to spend hundreds and hundreds of pounds to to, uh, create the opportunity for us to be there for 24 hours and to travel hundreds of miles in order to do it on the basis that you knew you were going to be disappointed? No, of course it wasn't, because it it is a fantastic tale. It's a fantastic location. And the mere fact that it draws so many people um, means that there is something that needs to be examined, that needs to be looked at, and that's the role of an investigator. A role of an investigator is not to go along and to prove or disprove anything, but to simply investigate, and that's what parascience had had gone along to do, and in subsequent years has repeated, uh, to test the idea of, well, it's the 28th of July. We've talked about anniversary ghosts and cyclical ghosts before on the show, this idea that on a given day or a given time, uh, a ghost will, will go back through the motions. We have Anne Boleyn at Blickling Hall. We have the battles of uh, the American Civil War and here in the UK, the English Civil War, um, notably July the 4th here in the UK when the Battle of Marston Moor. Uh, and because the tale is is accepted because all of these people will go to Borley and are probably trying to get in there now even as we speak means that there is something that that warrants um, a study and that's what investigation is Hmm. so uh, should I uh, put a camera on my uh, nun's jawbone uh, tonight or 
Um, well, if you believe the story, then yeah, absolutely. Well, well what? <laughs> do I believe the story of what? The, the, that it's the John Nunn's so, well, or I mean, the, sto- the, sto- the, st- the story of uh, uh, Mary Lair, Mary Lair, uh, is actually not a creation of Christ. The story and the name comes from the Reverend, uh, of the canon, Fidian, uh, Fidian uh, you know, I've forgotten his name now, um, who, after the publication of The Most Haunted House, in England, wrote to Price with his theory and ideas as to what um, the experiences, the visit of the nun, uh, the seance, importantly the seance messages, represented. And he put together this story about... um, And he linked it to the legend of tunnels and nuns, uh, walled-up nuns and monks. And he came up with this um, tale, uh, and that's all it was it was a theory a story that price wrote down verbatim um in the second book the end body rectory mm-hmm. and it's again just become an accepted part of, of uh so what's the what's the famous picture of the, the, what's the famous picture of the, well, it, well, the grave is it did that happen or not happen well it absolutely did happen that during excavations in the cellar of Bawley rectory they did discover uh, a number of uh, female human bone frag- skull fragments, including the jawbone, and that the jawbone uh, was subsequently reburied um, at Liston Church by the Reverend Hennings, and that, that caused the, that, that resulted in the famous photograph that uh, has been reproduced worldwide, the, of Price and Hennings at the burial of the, uh, the reburial, I should say, of the bones that were found. Interestingly, though, uh, uh, earlier in the story of Borley, um, uh, another skull had been found, this one wrapped in a brown paper bag. Was this uh, the one in the cupboard? Uh, this was the one in the cupboard, uh, wrapped in a brown paper bag. Um, and uh, so we have, we have two potential candidates. Mm-hmm. Do you die of me? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Just kind of tailed off totally then. So, anyways, the uh, the interesting thing about it is is all the other evidence in regards to it as well, including uh, you know the séance and and the writings. Uh, you know, we didn't even talk about that. No, I mean again, this is where we have the problem with Borley. And Price was always quite clear about this that the information uh, that relates to uh, the nun, the name, in fact, the whole name of the, of the nun, um, comes from a seance that, was, that took place uh, well away from Borley. It took place in London and was conducted by uh, Sydney, uh, one of the investigators, the lead investigator, effectively, uh, Sydney Glanville. His daughter um, conducted the seance, a planchette automatic writing sounds, which you yourself have been experimenting with uh, recently and mm-hmm. she came up with the name or uh, the name and other information that pertain to uh, the, uh, the supposed nun. So we have that information actually comes via a seance. There is no independent verification. Well, anyways, we have to take a break because I hear the tunes. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about this and the the seance and the automatic writing thing when we come back. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International with Mr. Steve Parson and Ron Kolick right here on Tojanet Pararex, Planet Paranormal, Radio Crackle, and even your ghost box if you listen real careful. We'll be right back with following messages. 
Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be. With remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased, we'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give the awards to Family. Greetings and felicitations. I am Ron Collett, New England's own Van Helsing. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the Blonde Bombshell. And we're here at the elegant Benford Hall, the Downton Abbey of Venice. And we would like to extend a formal invitation to you to tune in every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. On Toginet. Parrot-X, Ghost Channel, and Planet Paranormal. You can even listen live on your smartphone with your TuneIn app or catch the podcast on iTunes. And now, time for tea. We're back to part two of Ghost Chronicles International with your host, New England's own Van Helsing, and me, who's just here to make up the numbers. Um, and before the break, we were talking about nuns because we're just those kind of guys. Mm. Mm. Anyways, uh, of course, uh, we were talking about automatic writing, which is, you know, really. Uh, yeah, you're you're back. Yeah, something I've gotten ri- ri- interested in. We we did a uh, a uh, workshop on that, which was amazing. In fact, it was so popular that I've got to now uh, have it as part of a spirit course. And so you can, Maureen Wood and myself will be there uh, leading the workshop, and you get to take home your uh, own writing planchette. So there you go. That's the bit I'm looking forward to most. Mm. 
Yeah, are you big into automatic writing? No, I, I like freebies. <laughs> uh, oh, you gotta take the you gotta take the workshop. It's the only way you can get it. Of course, I'll take the workshop. I've done. I've done. Uh, I doubt it. I've done lots of automatic writing sessions. Really? Attended, sat in, and participated in. Of course, actually I have participated. Actually participated in. Uh, you know, I just picture you sitting back there drinking your tea and smoking a cigarette and watching the whole thing. Like now, you see, now you see that you're making a typical British American assumption there that British drink tea. Most of us actually drink coffee these days. Yeah, whatever. You're expressive. Yeah, you're cappuccino. Yeah. What? What is it? DD call it? Turbo shot. Turbo shot. Yeah. Yeah. Let's remember that for September. A brown. Yeah, uh, brown. And a warm brown. Warm brown, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that was the normal coffee under a cup of warm brown. Yeah, warm brown, yeah. Everybody. Yeah. So anyway, let's get back to uh, right. So uh, we, well, we talked the, about the well, automatic writing thing. I was talking about that. Yeah. So let's. Well, automatic writing, of course, um, you know, it's one of the it's one of the routes into mediumship. You know, most of the um, developing is spiritualists. Uh, the early spiritualists used automatic writing as a way of developing their own mediumistic or their later claimed mediumistic. You, you understand why all these things were developed, right? Oh, of course I do. It's the same reason that we use the ghost box in K2s today. Because Which people is? Because people want to communicate directly with the, the deceased to know that there's a, an afterlife. To and eliminate the medium. And, uh, well, as I said, talk directly. Um, do away with the middleman. Go, you know, yep. forget the wholesaler and go straight to the top. Exactly. Uh, but so, 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 tell me a little bit about this automatic writing session that they had uh, at Borley. I mean, who conducted it? Who was there? What What was the results of it? I'm, okay. I'm well, 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 there were a number. I mean, it started off uh, initially. There was a, a seance actually conducted on there Price's first Price's very first visit to to the rectory. Um, Using more conventional table tipping uh, methods, um, and they they went to the point of actually constructing one and using the uh, the uh, table tipping and the code of knocks and raps, which we are familiar with. A great deal of information was allegedly come through, which started to develop the, the story of the nun. Um, it was it was all put very much in the form of leading questions: um, Are you the nun? Um, do you live near here? Did you die near here? And, of course, because you're limited to rapt responses or, or the table moving and tipping, uh, the questions do go, uh, for example, you know, uh, did, the, did the nun die violently here, etc., um, etc. Et so these are very leading questions and don't provide mm-hmm. very much information. However... Are there recordings of this? Uh, no, there are no actual uh, tape recordings, but there are transcripts because okay. uh, Price's secretary made made very accurate transcripts uh, because she was an accomplished, you know, shorthand. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, from table tipping, Glanville, who was who was effectively the lead investigator, uh, because Price didn't actually spend a great deal of time at Borley during the year of the of the main thrust of the investigation. Um, Glanville records uh, that they had some years before obtained a planchette with a view to carrying out some experiments. These did not materialise, and as the board persistently refused to move, he's referring to at Borley, and at none of the sittings at Borley did it write a single word. It was stored away, not used again, until it was taken. Uh, sorry, until it was taken to Borley. 
Um, he used a planchette, and he describes this as a heart-shaped piece of wood, at the apex of which is a sharpened lead pencil inserted at right angles, and at the other two ends of the board are small pentagraph wheels or casters. Um, the first planchette writings relating to Borley were produced on October the 21st by Roger Glanville, uh, Sidney Glanville's son, one of the other uh, and two other investigators, and the results were described as not being very encouraging. Uh, Glanville showed the scripts to his daughter, uh, who were all grown up, and one of which, Helen Glanville, had never used the planchette uh, and claimed to have had no details of the previous writings that had been uh, obtained was alone at her Streatham, which is a district of London, on October the 28th, 1937, and she claimed afterwards to have produced a number of automatically written scripts. And in Price's book, there are, there are a series of extracts. Questions were asked, uh, the questions were being asked aloud. Uh, can you tell me your name? Are you buried in the garden? Can you tell us where? Do you mean underneath the fir tree, near a tree, etc., etc.? Mm-hmm. Um, and from this, we we get the um, the name. We get the name Mary or Mary, and we get the name of the convent Lair. Uh, in fact, it's it's done in a, again a, a way which it's it's a leading question and could lead you know is wide wide open to criticism uh, because. Everything the, well, in, in, in the case of the, the convent, um, which was always linked with the story of a convent of Burris, or Burrs, which is nearby to Borley, uh, some, some sh- a few miles away from uh, Bo- uh, Borley, we have the, dis- the direct question, can you tell me the name of your nunnery? And the answer is spelled out, L-A-R-I-R-E, Lair. The question is then changed. Do you mean la? The board res- or the the writing responds a double r e. Is it the name of your nunnery that you are trying to write? The the written reply is yes. Can you tell me how far away? Two miles or more? The planchette responds yes. The question then is: Was it burres or burrs? Yes. Do you mean it was Burrs? Yes. Is it your own name you are trying to write, isn't it? Again, yes. So what we have there is the planchette responding positively to what are and what, what a, a modern uh, police investigator or criminal lawyer would say are highly leading questions. Mm-hmm. And, but it's from the from the basis of this transcript uh, between the, the the solo planchette um, of Helen Glanville uh, in London uh, that we get that the the basis of the name. You know, everybody everybody refers to um, the nun as Mary La or Mary La. Um, and at the second seance, a second planchette um, experiment several days later that took place on Halloween of 1937, again in London, uh, but at this time attended by uh, the daughter, but this time with Sidney Glanville, son, and another investigator, they held a planchette seance, and the fingers of each of them were placed lightly onto the planchette. Uh, they asked the question, who is there? It was an indistinct answer. Then the planchette spelt out the name Mary, 
The next question is, what is your name? Um, the planchette apparently spells out Mary Lair, L-A-I-R-R-E, which was the corrected spelling from that was given to the spirits by Helen a few days before. Um, then we get all this... We get these very dis- in- indistinct answers uh, where the, the, the answers seem seemingly contradict each other. Are you happy? Are you unhappy? Are you buried in the garden? Are you buried under the monastery? Are you buried near the fir tree? And, of course, the skull was found, apparently, in the cellar. Uh, mm-hmm. So there is also, as during one of the seances, reference to being buried in the cellar. So was, who was buried in the cellar? Because clearly somebody was. They dug the bones up. Mm-hmm. Was anybody ever buried beneath a fir tree in the garden? Um, nobody ever found anything. Nobody ever found anything, um, certainly in the garden. And nobody ever ascertained the identity of the skull in the, in the brown paper bag. Mm-hmm. So it, we have... It's one of these eternal problems with, with seances because they are based upon having somebody, a human being, involved. We're trying to do out the medium... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're using the planchette as a ghost box, as a K2, to go directly to spirit, you know, sidestepping the, the need for a medium. But it, what are you, in fact, doing is putting a... You know, you, you're avoiding one person by putting yourself directly into the into the mm-hmm. picture. And we, we don't yet... Well, that's understand. because you believe yourself more than you would believe a medium. Well, exactly, but then we we, we know that the, the great problems of I know what I saw and I know what I heard uh, will then creep in because whether you are a psychic, exactly. whether you are a psychic, whether you are a medium, or whether you are just an, a complete non-believer, you are still a human being and subject to exactly the same frailties uh, <clears throat> and deceptions of the human mind. Um, and most of those deceptions that the that the mind plays are entirely inadvertent. We're not aware of them at all. Um, and people can get very, very cross when you try and point out that they're not actually imagining something that's, that, for them, was a very real experience. But there are some very interesting, if we took, continue on the planchette thing, there was a very interesting series of experiments that we, we just don't have the ability in a one-hour show uh, to cover in, in, in huge depth, particularly not with about 10, 10 minutes or so of it remaining, um, which was called the the cross correspondence. Now this took place uh, much earlier in the 90, in the 20th century, after a number of the founding members of the Society of Psychical Research passed over, um, and they had arranged a series of written messages in the form of codes that that wouldn't be understood um, in total to be communicated back from, you know, if they made it successfully to the other side. Um, and over, over a, a series of years, uh, through a series of mediums in the United Kingdom and in America, you, predominantly using automatic writing methods, great chunks of information uh, which didn't mean anything at all to the individual recipient, to the medium who was working the planchette, but when the whole was put together, seemingly... Um, provided substantial evidence that, in fact, these uh, coded messages were, were, were being successfully received uh, from, from um, somewhat, mm-hmm. from, the, from these deceased... Uh, yeah, that was the explanation then. That's still the, the current favoured explanation amongst many now. 
Um, many people have, have tried to debunk it. One of the great problems with, with the cross-correspondence is the sheer complexity. The, the, the whole thing was, was uh, constructed by very clever uh, men, classic, classically trained scholars who were very well averse in, in uh, coding and hiding uh, things and putting hidden meanings in. Um, from my perspective, uh, one of the mediums was, was quite local here. She was, uh, she was also uh, related to a British Prime Minister. The family were very well connected and she used to sit regularly at her table um, with her writing planchette or simply pen in hand because the most favoured method of automatic writing still remains the pen in hand method rather than a planchette method. Um, no, it's the planchette thing is 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 very interesting. I I, I find it uh, especially so. It, it's interesting too about even the the planchettes. Like the British have these most boring planchettes, where the Americans tend to be more jazzy. Uh, you know, the uh, the the most common shape of the British is just a paddle effect, where where the hot shape is more American. Um. Yeah, well, I think that comes down to marketing. I mean, if we look at what uh, what, what Full did with the Ouija board, um, you know, the British technique is, you know, as I say, you need a piece of wood that's, that's, that's heart-shaped. You drill a hole in one corner, you stick a pencil through it, put a caster on each end. But you're not going to sell very many of those, whereas you get an American businessman will come along and he will... Uh, plus, I think the Americans also have a, a, a don't you have a large history of, of crafting of wood, you know, of, of pyrography and of, of right. quilting. Oh, well, you do too. I mean, you've been making stuff we, for we hundreds, do, hundreds, but we do. But by, years. by the nineteenth century, you've got to remember that Britain was uh, by the late eighteenth century, Britain would become a largely industrial um, base society. People living in, in cities, whereas America was still um, a much more rural, uh, much more spread out, much more farm based. So therefore, crafting was still more popular. I guess it's interesting too because the planchette was actually developed prior to the Ouija board or, or the spirit it, it board. It certainly does. It certainly, yeah, absolutely. And, and you could see its development where you have just just the planchette with the writing device, and then. Soon you are getting little kits with yes and no uh, papers with it and, and letters and thing, and then you can see the actual development of this is next step is the board where it actually sits on a board, the pen's gone, and you're just doing it over letters and yes and no answers. Well, I mean, that was one of Ford's great, um, great uh, I guess, contributions, which was actually he brought together uh, the letter board. Uh, which had been used for hundreds of years, some say thousands of years, um, with various different types of pointer. The traditional British pointer, um, which I've, I, I, I'm aware is also used in America, is, is the upturned glass, which is placed over the letters, and then the glass slides from letter to letter to indicate a word or spelling. Uh, but what Full did was he took the planchette from automatic writing, which you rightly said predates uh, the Ouija board as a commercial uh, device, and he put the two, he put the planchette in the box. And instead of the pencil, he, he put a pointer um, or, or a hole in the planchette um, to indicate the letters. So that was the great, the great revolution. That's what led to the modern Ouija board. And the interesting thing, too, is like the, the British, when they made their uh, planchettes, they were made by scientific instrument companies. 
they were, you know, they were instruments, basically, in their minds. That's right. Because what you're dealing with is, I think that could just be a mindset difference. You know, if somebody wanted something, they would go, where do I get small brass casters from? Um, well, you would go to the guy who made your telescope, because or your local watchmaker or cabinet maker. Uh, so they were considered to be, in fact, if you look at the design of a British planchette, and I've seen several, they are small items of furniture. In fact, the word planchette literally means small table. Uh, from the French word. Uh, I, th- I thought I believe it, it means plank. plank. Uh, sm- well, small table or small plank, uh, yeah. but small table uh, is, one of the, is one of the other translations of the word. And it is, in fact, a small item of furniture. And the British, you know, <laughs> our version of the planchette is a small item of furniture. The American one was a commercial product um, to satisfy. Initially, of course, spiritualism was much, much, much bigger in America. Uh, it took... Although, although there were mediums like Daniel Hume and others who came across the Atlantic, and we certainly had you know, close links across the Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, in the 1840, late 1840s, 1850s, uh, I, spiritualism really took off in, in, in sort of northern uh, New York, upper, upper New York State, and then spread across into New England and the, uh, the, the New English states. It really, you know, there was a number of years delay before it took off here in in Great Britain. Um, In fact, spiritualism got a hold in France a little before it spread into into Great Britain. There were mediums, the Davenports had come over, um, but there weren't the sort of huge numbers of spiritualists that America had uh, at these early days. So we didn't have any need. The the few people who who were interested in contacting the spirits and automatic writing at this stage uh, they only needed one planchette perhaps two mm-hmm. so they would go to you know have one, one uh, bespoke one made whereas America you know you had a much you needed thousands of them so you, mm-hmm. they are so necessarily going to be there. anyway if anyone's more interested in, in the planchette uh, I recommend that you visit my friend Brandon Hodges' website, which is the Mysterious Planchette, and he has uh, a gallery of all various planchettes through the years, and also the history and, and some of the other stuff involved. So check that out, Mysterious Planchette. And uh, so, anyways, getting back to Borley, and which you know yeah. we're running out of time. Uh, you have investigated it. Uh, have you ever picked up anything? I mean, I know you've. You've gotten some interesting results before, like at the school and so forth. Any EVPs, any uh, audio or video or any personal experiences during your visits to Bali? Um, Unfortunately not. Um, And it's not through lack of trying. There is a huge difficulty now involved in, as anybody who has tried to investigate Bali uh, has discovered, that the last active investigations were really carried out in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, but the popularity of it has worked very much worked against uh, an investigation. The, the, uh, the incumbent of the church, the parish church, uh, has no truck with, with ghost investigations. In fact, when I was speaking to him, he actually denied that ghosts inhabit yeah. churchyards. Yeah, there you go. Well, it, he said that you know, ghosts don't inhabit churchyards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he, you know, he was having none of it. And the village, as you can imagine, they've had... Uh, they've had enough, anyway. 
they've had 80 or 90 years of people yeah. tramping through the village looking for looking for the ghost so mm-hmm. it is incredibly difficult but the, there was one very interesting and I, I suppose sobering experience that took place at Borley uh, it took place in the very early hours of July 29th um, 2006 uh, when myself and Dr Kieran O'Keefe were uh, taking a walk through the churchyard um, which is directly opposite the site of uh, of the, rec- the former rectory, um, and itself has, has become the location where the haunting uh, has, has sort of moved across the road to the churchyard. And we went into the churchyard, and it was about uh, 2 a.m., and it was pitch black. All of the ghost hunters had gone home, and the village had, had returned to quiet and calm, and we took a walk into the churchyard. And as we walked in through the through the, the uh, lynch gate of the church, through the gate of the church, into the into the quiet churchyard where the the, the Bull family are buried, the two the two rectors, Harry and he- uh, Henry and his son Harry Bull are there together with other members of the family. We heard a distinct noise in the bushes, and you know this story. You know what happens next. That you have here a competent ghost hunter, I hope, the gold standard in ghost hunting and one of Britain's leading parapsychologists. And we weren't going to be fooled for a minute by this rustling in the, coming from the undergrowth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we knew it was, it was just animals, wild animals, foxes perhaps, rutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was Cal for, Cooper, right? Uh, Cal was, I think he was Hide, about five. Hiding in the bush. Well, I was thinking Cal would be about five when we were yeah, doing Yeah, well, that's this. about right, yeah. Anyways... So, you know, we weren't full for a minute. In fact, I think one of us said to the other, you know, if it, if it wasn't for our sort of greater greater knowledge, um, we, we, we could think that there was something paranormal taking place here. So we spent the next half hour, 40 minutes, wandering through the churchyard, and we were occasionally reminded and aware of the noises that were coming from the bushes and from the undergrowth, and smilingly, you know, we, we patted ourselves on the back at, at our... Uh, astuteness and as we were leaving the churchyard out stepped 12 people who were all hiding under the bush these were another bunch of ghost hunters who'd come into the church but were hiding from us because when they saw us came in they thought we were the we we were part of the police patrol um and so they they darted uh, dive for cover so Hmm. We go back to the house, and of course, the foolish thing is, we now tell the story, and we tell the story to Anne and Winsper and Dr. Simon Sherwood. So, another a very experienced ghost hunter and a parapsychologist go off on the next on the next shift, and we all and we did have people out uh, in the lane who were watching the churchyard. Um, when Anne and Simon got to the churchyard, it was empty. There was nobody there, nobody to be seen, and nobody. On the outside, um, road patrol had seen these people come and go. Wow. So, Ninja ghost hunters. Ninja ghost hunters. I've got to say that there are hundreds of ways you can get in and out of Borley Churchyard without ever being noticed. Anyway, uh, that was the pizza bell, so you know, pizza from the dead's here. But, I mean, I have, I have one question to really ask you, and, and this could be beyond Borley as well. I mean, you spent a great deal of money to rent this place i mean did you attempt any spiritual experiments there i mean did you attempt a a ouija board something do you attempt a glass swirling a a knocking or whatever Uh, and and have you ever 
have, have we ever used seance methods? Of course we have, yes, but not at okay. Borley, uh, okay. because it was specifically forbidden under the terms of our agreement. Oh, to be very announced. good, very good. Okay. Um, but on countless occasions where it has been warranted as part of the investigation, then absolutely um, seance methods might be used, but they're, they're done in a very controlled way. Um, right, exactly. Because otherwise you're going to get absolutely no information from from this sense. And we've had some very interesting results over the years. Yeah. I just uh, want to know if you guys, you know, like to have fun once in a while, that's all. Oh, but we don't do it for fun. We do it for... Uh, <laughs> I understand, having done seances, though, and participated in probably hundreds over the years, um, I can understand the thrill of the seance, absolutely I can, and I can understand the thrill of the ghost box, because, you know, like everybody else, I'm human, and it's very, very difficult sometimes, despite what you say is my apparent scepticism. You have to, I have to, you know, sometimes, or at least... uh, Hold myself back from not getting drawn into the uh, the stories, the the developing. To me, it's tale. all about the human experience. It is very much a human experience. But we get about a few seconds left, so and it's fantastic to, to experience it. So, how can people get these free planchettes then? They have to go to uh, Spirit Quest, any ghost Tom, uh, by the uh, way, yeah, yeah. If, if somebody wants information on Borley and the tunes are playing now, uh, where, where should they go for inf- more information on Borley Rectory? Just Google it. There are thousands of pages. Just yeah, Google thanks it. for the help. It's the best advice I can give you. So what would you recommend, Mr. Parsons? Uh, well, you, uh, you could have a look on the Ghost Chronicles page because I've already posted the link to the Parascience investigation. Or you there you go. The, the Harry Price website. But you'd have to just Google oh, the Harry Price website. we got to go. Too bad. Have we gone? Have we gone? Yes, we have. Good night. God bless, everyone. Good night. God bless. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good luck.